I was going to say that this is all great, Jamal. And I think it's important to connect two things for the, the leftist audience that we have, because I think a lot of people initially are thinking, who cares what the founders think? You know, settler colonialism, slavery, all the true historical oppressions. Uh, why should we care what these dead white guys think? Um, and similarly, they're, they're thinking, okay, maybe these changes would be great, but that's pie in the sky. And yet I think there's a connection between why we need to take seriously our history and these institutions and the powers they have and the justification theoretically for the institutions as they were constructed because the right does that. And that's part of how the right papers over and justifies all the things they do politically. Right. And the left, I think the argument goes needs to be in the contestation field theoretically for why self-governance in this country with these institutions should change things towards these emancipatory goals that we have with the kinds of proposals you're making. And so I think there's a connection between the pragmatic uh, possibility of these changes happening and the need to draw on our history to create a narrative that fits the, the left's narrative instead of uh, the evil American empire should, we should just ignore everything about our, you know, documents and our institutions, right? Like, isn't there a connection that, that you're making between the necessity for examining the history and talking about these institutions in a way that gives us possibility rather than just the simple kind of easy, uh, condemnation of our history and our institutions? Yeah. No, I, and I'm, I'm like totally willing to stipulate all the bad stuff. Like, <laughs> I'm not someone yeah, right? who's going to be like, yeah, yeah, we got to look for the good in Thomas Jefferson. Like, yeah, sure. I mean, there's good things about him. I think, I think the guy gets credit for the Declaration of Independence, no doubt. But like, he was not, you know, even by the standards of his like class, he was like not the best guy in the world. So stipulated that all these people are deeply flawed, ranging from sort of like, you know, not great to actively terrible. Um, I still think it's worthwhile. I mean, we, this, this is the country we live in. We live in the United States. We live in a country with a long and healthy tradition of constitution worship. We live in a country that, uh, continues to venerate its founders, um, that has this sort of like strong and quite thick civic religion that is actually appealing to a lot of people. And we live in a country where the political right has been very adept at sort of like using that history and using that civic religion and all these things to, essentially propagandize against democratic participation, against democracy, against the kinds of values that uh, people on the left have. And so I think it's worthwhile to try to craft a counter narrative, especially since the ingredients and the tools are already there. Um, I think that's just been, I've been kind of like, uh, I kind of like in my reading, I kind of like flip between either basically sort of like the 1790s to the 1820s or like the 1840s and 1850s. Like those are the two periods of time I find really interesting because they're just, there's so much in flux, like so much is taking shape. Um, and I find them very like, you know, rich periods of, of American history to study kind of the, the, uh, the last chunk of the 19th century as well, last 10 years. Um, but I've been really taken. With this biography, I'm reading of Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, then uh, after that, uh, Chief Justice Supreme Court. But kind of he makes his name as probably the most um, well-known, next to William Seward, the well-known political anti-slavery guy, Liberty Party guy, Free Soil Party guy, kind of known for for being in that milieu of politics. And... um one thing that the, the anti-slavery politicians do, 
and they spend you know decades doing it abolitionists or at least like the the politically minded abolitionists and the, the ones against garrison join in on is they take all this material from the founding and they fashion it into an anti-slavery vision of the declaration an anti-slavery vision of the constitution and like the the academic part of me is sort of like I'm not really sure if they're right about that, but the the person thinking about this in terms of politics is like no, this is actually the exact thing they should have done, right? Sort of connecting their crusade to the founding and making a strong case that it is in fact the slave power, it is in fact their opponents who are kind of corrupting the nature of what the American Republic is. And I actually think that both in sort of a, both in kind of the symbolic sense of like, we should be doing this kind of thing, but also in the literal kind of arguments that they made, I think there's a lot to learn from that. A lot of learn, a lot to learn from a vision of the constitution as not just being for freedom, but being against hierarchy for being against domination, right? Um, you've seen some of this kind of bubble up in the post Dobbs, uh, discourse. Um, I think Peggy Cooper Davis is the, is the legal academic, uh, who wrote a book back in the nineties about this stuff. But there's been other legal academics who've been like touching on this, which is that the, the claim from Alito and the conservators on the court that, you know, abortion and reproductive rights broadly aren't really deeply rooted in the history of the United States, whatever the stupid phrase is. Um, <laughs> is belied by the circumstances behind the passage of the 13th and 14th Amendments, which were very much shaped and informed by the kind of pervasive and profound familial and sexual violence of slavery. Like, this this is like a whole separate conversation, but it's striking to me that in the public, in our contemporary public memory of slavery, we tend to act as if people then weren't kind of aware of what of what was going down south. But like people knew, um, you know, from escaped slaves and their narratives, from works of fiction like, you know, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, from, uh, you know, agitation from anti-slavery activists uh, who, you know, circulated this agitation in speeches and in literature. But like there was there was a there was a, a knowledge among Americans in the North and in the South, obviously, that like slavery wasn't just people working on fields. It was sort of like an organized system of sexual violence. And the people who wrote these amendments knew that slavery was an organized system of sexual violence. And sort of part of what the goal of restore of like of ending slavery and kind of like creating rights or protecting the rights of free blacks included was kind of just bodily autonomy because this, because slavery was by definition, you know, an assault on bodily autonomy. And so right here in the constitution, in this like particular founding moment of, of the post-war reconstruction era, you have, I think the big, you have the groundwork for a jurisprudence of bodily autonomy um, that can stand up. I think, I think pound for pound with whatever conservative uh, conservative narrative is out there to say that, no, the constitution actually, you know, in, in outlawing slavery, the constitution protects the bodily autonomy of all Americans. Because what, what do you describe? What, what is the state forcing you to do something with your body you do not want to do? Forcing you to carry a child against your will, forcing you to undergo dangerous medical procedures against your will. What is that? That's slavery. Um, and the constitution prohibits that. And that's the kind of arguments I think we need to be making, right? Like kind of looking at the constitution and saying, 
These are these broad principles that are there. There's a great book that just came out, the anti-oligarchy constitution, which takes this tact with regards to, you know, concentrations of wealth and whatever. Um, that the constitution, the men who wrote the constitution, uh, they had all these concerns that in w- one way or another, kind of addressed by the text of the constitution, or if it isn't, opens room for possibilities and, and interpretation. And we should run with it. Um, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should always, of course, stipulate the, the, uh, really awful and evil stuff this country has done. But in terms of making political arguments to a broad public, um, I think you're allowed to put that on the back burner. I think you're allowed to do that. I think you're allowed to, 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 uh, embrace the good and kind of just like put forth a constitutional argument and not let the right claim the constitution say that they're the they're constitutional conservatives like yeah first right. of all first of all you're and, not <laughs> yeah um it's like for them to define that that freedom is domination for them to say actually this is what freedom means or right. you know or or what equality means because they want to take the mantle of all these principles too right and I, it reminds me for some of my students who um who are against, say, the welfare state because they say that, uh, well, there's fraud and there's all these problems. And I just say, okay, I'm going to stipulate whatever you're saying administratively that might be the case. That is not an argument against the purpose and ideal of helping people and the function of the welfare state. You're talking about administrative problems, okay? Uh, but if you use any historical problems with the praxis, the political realities as a way to undermine the principles, then you get in big trouble, right? Then you're unmoored. And I, and I think we need to reclaim on the left that freedom, democracy, equality, these are all things that if we do it uh, in the way that we say needs to be done in a non-domination kind of way, that is the realization of the declaration, right? That That is not the perversion of it, which so many people historically have done, I think, right? Right, right. And also just on sort of like a crass, like, you know, everyday politics level, I, I one thing I think the... Uh, Donald Trump specifically and kind of the Trump Republican Party has done actually quite well is kind of paint this image of like of liberty as like of kind of like patriarchal domination, which appeals to a lot of people sort of like I can be, you know, I can be the man of the household. I can be the the successful homesteader kind of thing. There's this ad from the 2020 election from Trump. It's like a Spanish language ad. But it sort of it has like, you know, sort of like a family, traditional family unit. They're all Hispanic, but like people are working, buying a house. Like this is the kind of thing that appeals to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, I think there's a way to to co-op that. If not co-op that, then like put forth an alternative thing, which is like, yes, those things are great. Not going to contest that. But like, do you want to be dominated by a boss? Do you want to be dominated by these faceless corporations? Like there's all this, all this domination that occurs in your life that robs you of the ability to feel free. What they're offering is kind of an illusion of freedom that if you just kind of like shut up and obey, then you'll be able to at least like have a home and be able to hoard your stuff. Um, and that's just like, don't you want kind of like the freedom that comes with actually being secure in your person? And actually being able to stand up to all of these people, all of these institutions that um, want nothing to, to more to keep you down, right? And I think I think that's that's a message that can appeal to people. Um, 
especially the the groups of people that seem to be moving away from the Democrats. Like, you know, uh, we're going to we're going to be the, the the friendly, normal people who you know manage things well. It doesn't appeal to anyone. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's like bit, we're going to kick Comcast in the fucking face. That <laughs> there you does. go. Now you're talking. Well, because the, the neoliberals, right, are actually offering a different interpretation of freedom, which is neither domination nor non-domination, but tokenism and the kind of like, you know, the CIA can can have or we can paint Black Lives Matter in the street or the, or the CIA can be woke. And, and you know what I mean? And like Chick-fil-A uh, honors it? or LGBTQ yeah. associates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to virtue signal, and that, that's what the part. We're the party of uh, you know symbolism. So uh, I think it's pretty clear what I mean. This is the the irony is actually helping people will be popular if you do it right. Right, uh, and, and I think if you if you if you you connect it to a narrative, right? Like this is mm-hmm. uh, yeah. this is sort of like the. I feel like it's easy to go back to FDR, but this is actually kind of the political genius of kind of the direct aid part to the New Deal, that it wasn't just we're going to give you help. It was connected to a larger narrative of what that help is and how that relates to you as a citizen, right? Like we're going to give you a job, not because we think you need a handout, but because to kind of stand up on your own and be someone, you need to have the opportunity to work. Um, And I think... I just think that I think that uh, uh, Democrats, at the very least, many of them have just like lost if they even had this way of talking um, and uh, of relating to people. Part of it is because I think it's like it's a very aggressive and partisan way of going about things. And that just seems to not be kind of in the, the mode of a lot of the uh, folks who who lead the Democratic Party. But I also do think it's it's sort of tied to a. um I don't know, it seems it seems to be tied to like a conception of politics and a conception I'll put it this way. I think it's tied to a like firm idea of what your end state is that I'm not sure that the institutional democratic party has. Like what is what is kind of, you know, let's say you win the next four elections, national elections, you have like let's let's say you have like like the Reagan Republicans, twelve years of uninterrupted control of national government. Like what what do you want at the end of that? And I'm not sure that the National Institutional Democratic Party has an answer to that question. And that kind of I remember tri- the answer. Jamel J- J- Joe Biden was nothing will fundamentally change. Right. That was Joe Biden's answer. <laughs> yeah, they they want the same people the to be in power at the end of the 12 years. We're going to get immortality treatments for, for Nancy Pelosi right, and right. Biden. Um, but to maybe to, to return to, um, you're talking about the reconstruction amendments and, uh, you know, constitutional interpretation and stuff. And, and I, and I'm, I'm on the same page with you in terms of the original constitution, you know, that it's like, uh, pretty flawed. Uh, you could sort of make an argument that it that it it had like some egalitarian elements to it, but like it it, it was there was some pretty seamy compromises in there. But when you get to the Reconstruction Amendments, you know, for 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 reasons I guess which which are which makes sense to me, but are are nevertheless um, you know unfair. You know, when people talk about the framers of the Constitution. They never talk about John Bingham, the right. guy who wrote the 14th Amendment. I mean, here's a constitutional framer, and I would say arguably the most important one when it comes to contemporary discussions about rights and privileges and whatnot. Uh, you know, the 14th Amendment is like 
central to all of this constitutional litigation and stuff, you know, like the Roe versus Wade and, and, um, uh, the, the right to contraception and, and all that, uh, business. Um, you know, Bingham in his day, he, he thought that this was something that was meant to empower Congress, not the Supreme Court. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out, but he was a really egalitarian guy. He was like a critic, a critic of the, of the constitution and, and, uh, the, the compromises with slavery. But he argued that it, it, it was, you know, uh, redeemable. And he did, in fact, redeem it himself, you know, putting the great, big, huge, new, uh, sweeping powers in the hands of Congress, getting rid of slavery. Um, he didn't write the 13th Amendment, of course, but like as part of this package, you know, we have like another group of framers, you know, of this document, people who, you know, you could theoretically imagine setting up a sort of like cult worship or at least a little bit of a hero <laughs> complex to be like, this is our boy, John Bingham. The We all know him. We all love him. You know, and yet nobody really talks about this guy uh, uh, on the Democrats or or in the Republicans. And I think it's like a sort of weapon lying on the ground waiting to be used, you know, to be like, well, look, this, you know, this guy is just like James Madison. Uh, he wrote the founding document. And so, you know, we have to look. And it, it is funny also, as a final point, that the originalists, they never talk about what John Bingham thought about things, you know, and uh, uh, it, it it speaks to, you know, the cramped vision of, of those guys, but also, you know, the lack of attention to uh, uh, our own history on, on the left and among liberals. Yeah, I, 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 I 100% agree. I mean, the entire, you know, the, the reconstruction congresses um, are a, a, a rich resource for thinking about, you know, but what, what those amendments mean, but also sort of like crafting an alternative a narrative of what the constitution is. I mean, I, you know, for my part, for as much time as I, I do spend with the OG founders, for my part, like the constitution we have is the one that was like ratified with the 15th amendment, right? That's the constitution. Like that's, that's everything after that builds on that constitutional foundation that the, the founders constitution. Um, I mean, you can make a case that the founders constitution, like, died after 20 years. But if you don't want to make that case, the founders constitution was dead when, uh, when the shots were fired in Fort Sumter, when yeah, that happened failed at that point, yeah, that, that, that's when it died. And there is still some value in thinking through what the founders and the framers were trying to do, what the ratifiers thought they were trying to do. There's value in kind of engaging with the thought uh, of all these guys, I think it's practical politicians in the 1790s and 1800s, um, of how they, you know, once the constitution was in effect, were interpreting the constitution. But I think their ideas and interpretations have, uh, beyond the most abstract ones, have limits for the simple reason that once those, once, once those guns opened up on Fort Sumter, their project died. And so the what constitution we have is the one that comes out of the Civil War. It's the one that comes out of the decades of agitation by abolitionists, by black activists, by, uh, temperance activists, by, by all these people, right? Um, who were agitating for a more egalitarian society and for whom the Civil War and its aftermath became the great opportunity to make their imprint on the governing document of the country. That's the constitution we have. And so I think we should just be much more attuned to those people in our like narratives 
of the constitution um and much more attuned to their i mean we shouldn't be we shouldn't be bound by the intentions of the long dead people but if we're going to be thinking about the intentions of long dead people then you're right ryan right like john bingham's egalitarianism um daddy stevens's sort of like you know belief in like radical wealth redistribution i mean these things do matter um quite a bit and if you, if you, I'll, I'll say as well that if you agree with the idea that there are such things as informal amendments to the constitution that essentially become part of the constitutional, um, firmament, then I think you should extend this thinking to the 1930s, right? Sort of like the 1930s are a time when kind of the country has to fundamentally rethink what it is. Like, what does democracy actually mean and self-government actually mean in a world of industrial capitalism and a world where the state can accumulate so much power and when it, when non-state entities can accumulate so much power and you know guys like uh, uh Robert Wagner <laughs> had like answers um that became an important part of how we think about the American government uh and um you know we should pay attention to that and we should pay attention to all the people who may not be brand names but nonetheless um, we're a part of uh, all these struggles and all these fights uh, that should shape our sense of what the Constitution is. I still think it's important to lay a claim on the framers and the founders just for like basically kind of like political reasons. Right. Sort of. I really I, I really do not think we, we, we should let the rights be able to sort of like, you know, claim a, Jeff- a Jefferson. Um, as ter- as, as, as terrible as Jefferson was, like, his political enemies were like, yeah, that guy wants the French Revolution in the United States. And I think there's something there to work with <laughs> in terms yeah, totally. of, like, yeah. utilizing, yeah. um, utilizing Jefferson. So I, I, I strongly believe that, like, you cannot let the right, um, uh, claim this stuff. I feel like half of what I'm doing with my column is basically trying to be like, you know, uh, a kind of originalist, but from the left to kind of just like kind of stake out a space <laughs> nice. of being like, I'm a person who cares about this stuff a lot, but I don't care about it from a perspective of founder worship. I care about it from a perspective of like useful ideas and, you know, staking a claim on these people um, uh, for the cause of more democracy or at least like more robust self-government. Um, yeah. yeah. Washington voluntarily stepped down and everyone was like, wow, you know, I mean, that was such an important norm for more than a century. Right. I mean, that you say now that it's, it's kind of shocking that no one's tried to bring that up in relation to Trump. Yeah. Just be like, (laughs) they should, they should, they they absolutely should sort of like, you know, there are a Republican party that stands with Trump as a Republican party that stands against George Washington, who did this kind of foundational thing, not just for American democracy, but for like literally for global democracy that's the end of the preview folks as usual we like to mention that this podcast is sponsored by the american prospect magazine so if you want to listen to the whole thing uh you could subscribe at five dollars a month if you want that plus a free subscription to the website uh plus the opportunity for a steeply discounted print subscription you can do that if you so wish at ten dollars a month and uh otherwise thanks for listening We'll see you next time.